Good morning. How are you guys feeling today? I'm glad to be here. At 10.30 last Saturday night, I went to bed uh, praying about Easter, feeling great, excited about Easter. At 2.30 in the morning, uh, Easter Sunday, I started throwing up. And that continued for the next 10 hours or so. And uh, uh, when it was time to get up and come to church and get ready, I told my wife, I said, babe, I'm going. I got to go. She said, no, you're not going. I said, just tell those front rows they're in the splash zone. I got to go. Pastor cannot miss Easter Sunday. Have you ever heard of such a crazy thing? Well, uh, I hated to miss, and I really, really hated to miss, but man, I'm so thankful that uh, there was just an amazing Easter at uh, Aspen Grove this past week. Uh, All our staff and volunteers, man, can we just give them a hand for, uh, they just did an amazing job. And, uh, and especially to Gary Vermas, who covered for me with like zero notice whatsoever. And just, yeah, it was amazing. Um, God's name was lifted high. He was praised. And we had a first at Aspen Grove. We had more than 200 people in attendance at Easter. Praise God. Isn't that amazing? I only wish I was here to see it. And please try to keep all the jokes about the highest attendance we ever had was the Sunday Adam wasn't preaching to a minimum. (laughs) Doesn't hurt at all. So I need a mulligan. I want to do over. I want to do over with this. We're calling it Easter season, not just a single Sunday. We're extending it. So we're going back to John chapter 20. Is that okay? Can I have a do over? All right, we're having a do over. In John, we've been walking through all of these scenes together. Even a few weeks ago, we we showed you a series of paintings. And go ahead and, TJ, put those up there. We've seen Jesus in the garden. We've seen Peter's denial. We looked at the flagellation of Christ in Pilate's court. We talked about the esse homo, the behold the man where Pilate put Jesus before the crowd. And we went all the way up to the entombment. Right, do you remember this? John invites us into the story. He invites us to stand in his shoes. Remember, he's an eyewitness. He invites us to see it through his eyes. And if you'll permit me, I want to continue the story today. It comes straight from John chapter 20. And it begins with sweet Mary. I love this scene. Sweet Mary is at the tomb before dawn even breaks. She can't keep away. It's fair to say that no one in Scripture ever loved Jesus more than Mary. When she arrives, her worst fears are realized. The body of Jesus has been taken. This is actually a pretty common thing. Like grave robbery was a thing. It it happened. She immediately decides to report to the disciples, and she reports the missing body. She reports the crime to Peter and John, and their response is to run flat out. That's what it says. They run as fast as they can to the scene of the crime, what must have been racing through their minds as they ran. Out of breath, they arrive at the entrance. 
they stoop and look in and see the wrappings lying there. When they see the folded grave clothes, they learn two things really quickly. Like, like this is a pretty interesting piece of scripture. They peer in and there are the grave clothes. It says folded, still in their folds is what it says. So the first thing they know is, the first thing they recognize is like, okay, this is not a grave robbery, right? Why? Because a grave robber, why would they unwrap the corpse and fold the clothes, right? So they know, okay, his body hasn't been taken. But there's an interesting piece of, in, in, in the original language, of it says, still in their fold. So sometimes maybe, that, maybe you think about folding the laundry or something like that. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you get it, you fold it up, and you stack it up. And sometimes you even see that picture in art. But there's this other perspective, and I'm not saying I know which one is right or wrong, but the other perspective of this still in their folds is that the cloths that wrapped Jesus, kind of like, I don't know, like a mummy, were still in the shape of Jesus, except he's not in them. Pretty amazing and interesting, don't you think? They see these clothes still in the shape of Jesus, and yet he's gone. He's evaporated. <laughs> And that's when it says it in chapter 20, verse 8. The disciples who had reached the tomb first, they went in, and it says, He saw and believed. That's when the light bulb goes off. Until then, they hadn't got it. They'd seen the signs, but it never clicked. Now with certainty, they realize this is no robbery. This is resurrection. And John, the beloved disciple, and our witness, our storyteller, holds the place in history to be the first ever to believe in the risen Jesus. Peter and John leave, and Mary, breathless, shows up again. Sweet Mary, she's back again. The sun's barely risen, and now she's made two trips to the empty tomb head still spinning. She looks in and expects to see Peter and John, but instead encounters two angels who interrogate her. Why are you crying, they ask. She says, because they've taken him. They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've put him. Jesus is lost, and we must find him. And that's when it happens, another amazing scene in John chapter 20. The gardener shows up. You expected that, right? At least she thinks it's the gardener. She even interrogates the gardener, hoping, okay, maybe he was here. Maybe he knows who came and took the body. Maybe he saw something. So she starts like interrogating, hoping to get some information to solve the case of the missing body. But in her grief, she's not seeing things clearly. In an incredible irony in the fourth gospel, Mary is the first person in the history of the world to see the resurrected Jesus, but she thinks he's the gardener. At least until the gardener speaks. One of the most beautiful moments in all of Scripture. Mary's not seeing clearly, doesn't recognize the truth of who he is, 
until the gardener says her name. The resurrected king, and this is vivid in scripture, the resurrected king only has to say Mary. And in that moment, Mary hears and she knows 100% without a doubt or without hesitation the truth. And I love that there's, there's two quick reminders that like just detours here that, that I, I got to just stop on just for a second. The first detour is that we should all look twice at our landscape crews. Right? When was the last time you really looked at the guy cutting your grass or taking care of your lawn? This scripture says we better look twice. And the second lesson of this is, is it possible that the thing you are searching for can be right in front of your face? Mary has seen Jesus. She knows the truth. How about you? The resurrected king gives her a message. She's the messenger again. Run back again, Mary. How many laps has she done now? She's at it again. She finds the disciples, but this time is different. Her report is not robbery, but resurrection. She's the first to see the resurrected Jesus, and she's the first to bring the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, right? And her proclamation in verse 18 is, I have seen the Lord. No, it isn't finished. It's only just beginning. Don't you see? Jesus keeps showing That very night as the disciples cower behind closed doors, Jesus is suddenly and miraculously among them. He offers them peace and their hearts are filled with joy. He commissions them as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And he breathes on them and they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He even gives them the power to forgive sins. But there's a problem. Because someone is missing. One of the disciples is missing, nicknamed the twin. Thomas is absent. Where's Thomas? Is he in the bathroom? You know, like, you have the stomach virus? Or was he just so heartbroken that, you know, you get in that space, you just need to be alone? Either way, Thomas missed the moment. Now imagine this scene. Somehow, in some point in time, Thomas is reunited with the disciples, and yet their whole demeanor and attitude has changed completely. It's gone from grief, and now it says their hearts are filled with joy, and Thomas doesn't understand why until they tell him. They, they share Mary's proclamation, like, we have seen the Lord. And to Thomas, it sounds too good to be true. As I feel like a kind of, why are you yo-yoing me through all these emotions? Why would you say such a thing? Like Thomas, Thomas can't bear the news. And he digs in. In verse 25, he says these words. He says, I won't believe it. I won't believe it unless I see the wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. 
Thomas says this, and everybody reading this story, and all Christendom throughout the ages has responded by saying, Thomas, you idiot. Right? Thomas said, like, in your brain, the wheel is spinning, but the hamster's dead, brother. Like, he's a few clowns short of a circus. If Thomas had another brain, it would be lonely. Right? What do you mean you won't believe it? And for this profession, Thomas receives a new name, right? You know what it is, right? Doubting Thomas. Did you know that there are kids out there that will, like, get, and if this is your kid, don't, don't point them out or, or uh, yeah, point them in any way. But do you know that, that there are kids out there that when they get upset or frustrated or get angry, their way of dealing with it is to just hold their breath? And some kids will, like, are so, like, mm, hardcore about this that they will hold their breath until they pass out. For me, I think that's a great, I mean, doesn't hurt my feelings at all. But did you know that? Like, that there are kids that get so, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's some conviction, Right? Like, I think that's probably who Thomas was. Like, and, and honestly, like, I think Thomas gets maybe a little bit of a bad rap because I, I want to redeem, redeem doubting Thomas a little bit. Because Thomas has conviction. Think about this. Right? Thomas is, is unafraid to voice his doubts or his questions. You know, Thomas is the kid that always raises his hand in class. If if there's something he hasn't understood. Maybe a pessimist, okay, we'll give him that. But he doesn't lack courage either, right? He wants to see the evidence for himself. And if you look at scripture, I know it's only the next verse. But between this verse and the next verse, eight days, a whole week passes. And for eight whole days, the doubter stands by his convictions. Imagine this. All of the other disciples are saying, we have seen the Lord. We have seen the Lord. We have seen the Lord. And Thomas says, mm-mm, not buying it. That's conviction. And that's when it happens. Again, the doors are locked. We don't know if he's beamed in like Star Trek or steps out of the shadows like a magician. It simply says, Jesus again appears among them. He offers peace and he turns his attention to Thomas. Almost as if he came specifically for Thomas. Where's the doubter? All the disciples are like, you know, they're trying to distance himself. They know he's in for it now. And using Thomas's own words in verse 27, Jesus says, put your fingers right here. Look at my hands. Put your hand in the wound in my side. The Italian master painter, Caravaggio, captures the moment. In a painting called The Incredulity, am I pronouncing that right? You don't know either, that's fine. 
the incredulity of Thomas. Soak it in for a moment. Painted in 1602. It's in the Sanssouciau uh, Portrait Gallery in uh, Potsdam, Germany. I called them to see if they'd let me borrow it, but they... So you have to deal with just a copy. Pretty emotional, I think. Um, when I, I've had this in my office as I was preparing this teaching, and uh, my assistant Hazel came into my office, and she can't look at it. She comes in like this. She says, it's gross. <laughs> Maybe it is a little gross. If you look like Thomas' face shows surprise as Jesus takes Thomas's hand and puts it into his side. And I know you're maybe you're a little bit far back, but he's at least a couple of digits deep in there. Incredulity of Thomas is what uh, Caravaggio named it. Uh, that, that word incredulity, I had to look it up. It's just uh, this state of, it's the holding your breath until you pass out. It's the full unwillingness at any cost to believe something. And what I hope you see in this painting is that Jesus isn't distanced or distracted by our doubts. Instead, he takes us by the hand and draws near to us. And that's when he says it. Reading Thomas like a book, Jesus sees straight through him and says, in verse 27, don't be faithless any longer. Believe. Have you ever had one of those moments, moments when it seems like all the air is taken out of the room? I had that moment when I saw the fires in Notre Dame. Did you see that? Like, oh. Have you ever had the moment where where time stops and every st everything stands still. In John's gospel, this is it. In John's gospel, this is the moment. Jesus looks into his eyes and says, don't be faithless any longer. Believe. And in verse 28, Thomas exclaims, my Lord and my God. Thomas's heart runs out in love and devotion. Uh, uh, like, like it comes, these words come across his lips so naturally, it's almost a reflex. Yet in that moment, no one ever said anything as right as what Thomas just said. Do you see that? It's the rightest thing that could ever be said in the history of the world. Some have said this is the strongest statement of Jesus' deity in the New Testament. It's the culmination of everything John is trying to do in his gospel. It's the culmination of everything he wishes and hopes for every one of us who read it. Thomas sees clearly for the first time the truth of Jesus and names him God and names him Lord of his life. This is the moment. It's the moment Thomas the doubter becomes Thomas the believer. In a case, maybe you're thinking, well, this is a great story. 
you know, maybe if I was there like Thomas, it, you know, if like Thomas I could see it for myself, I would believe it too. As if Jesus knew us, Jesus simply says, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. In verse 29, I love the sentiment of that verse. Jesus seems to think that even when your hands haven't touched it and your eyes haven't seen it, your insides have a way of knowing the truth. Do you believe that? That you know the truth? That there is some part of you that just knows the truth? That that part that gave words, that gave the words, my Lord and my God, to Thomas's lips? Like, I don't have a, a spear-pierced side for you to put your fingers in. I don't have a nail-pierced hand for you to hold. But Jesus, through John's gospel, offers himself to us just the same. John has given us front row seats through his own eyes and personal experience. He's invited us into the garden and the upper room. We've seen Pilate's court and we've been at the foot of the cross. We've raced to the empty tomb. We've seen the grave clothes still in their folds and we've heard the report, I have seen the Lord. Look at them peeking over Thomas's shoulder. John wants that to be you. If he could paint, if Caravaggio could paint you in, he would paint you right there. John invites us to lean in uncomfortably close because this isn't supposed to just be Thomas's moment. It's supposed to be ours too. I know that we live in the buckle of the Bible belt. I know we live with a church on every corner where everybody is a Christian. I know we think Nashville is the holiest city in America. But the truth is, maybe there is a little incredulity. The truth is, maybe there's a little doubt. The truth is, maybe there's a little Thomas in each of us. The truth is, there's a lot of people in our area who are holding their breath refusing to believe. Yet John chapter 20 reminds us that Jesus just keeps showing up. He doesn't call us by our sin. Remember, all of that is finished. Instead, he calls us by our name. And through John's gospel, he stands before you and me just as he did before Thomas. In the face of all our doubts and fears, he stands here even today, he looks each of us in the eye and says, don't be faithless any longer. Believe. In just a moment, I'm going to offer a prayer and invite each of you to enter into a time of reflection and communion. The elements of the Lord's Supper are on the tables around this room, and I encourage you to enter into this space. But if your heart compels you as Thomas's heart compelled him Man, if this morning you're ready to respond to Jesus' plea, I invite you. I'll just gonna, I'm just going to stand up here kind of to the front. Today, above all days, I invite you to lean in and look close.
What does your heart tell you? May this be your moment. A moment where your doubt is turned to believe. A moment where you respond to the truth of Jesus with the same life-altering words of Thomas. My Lord and my God. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for your word and for its truth. Let it resonate deeply within each of us as we approach this table and remember the sacrifice that your son made. But Father God, it's not enough to leave it on the cross, Father God. This was all, that, that moment of death and burial and resurrection was for this moment so that we would believe. And so Father God, for any in this room that have lingering doubt, God, I pray that, that you, would, you would appear to them, that you would reveal yourself to them in undeniable fashion so that they may proclaim, so that we may all proclaim as Thomas did, my Lord and my God. Father God, we thank you for this day. Bless us as we enter into this time of communion and response. And everyone together says, amen. Enjoy a time of communion together.